Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Michael O'Hanlon, who has written a very interesting book that I'm excited to talk about. But I am also excited because Mike used to be my boss when I was very lucky to spend some time at the Brookings Institution. So this is cool for me personally on multiple levels. Um, But we are here to talk mainly about his most recent book, uh, which is also incredibly interesting just purely by itself, if I didn't already know a bit about Mike and his work. The book is titled The Art of War in an Age of Peace, U.S. Grand Strategy and Resolute Restraint from Yale University Press in 2021, which really is an informed modern plan for what American policy should be going forward. Um, that's a really big claim, and yet it the book absolutely delivers by talking both generally and in specific detail about a lot of different areas of U.S. foreign policy. So I'm really excited to welcome you, Mike, to the podcast to tell us about it. Professor Melcher, it is great to be with you, and congratulations on all your accomplishments, uh, Doctor, since we collaborated some six or seven years ago, and I look forward very much to the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Um, Could you introduce yourself to the people who don't know very much about your career and explain why you decided, um, given your many, many books and research areas, that this was going to be your book for 2021? Thanks. Well, I've been at Brookings 28 years, most of my career, half my life. I'm 61. And so in a nutshell, I studied the hard sciences in you know physics and then engineering in college and for my master's degree. In between those two degrees, I spent two years in the Peace Corps in Democratic Republic of Congo and wanted to do sort of science and public policy, but didn't quite know precisely what that meant. So meandered my way through graduate school, ultimately winding up at what was then called Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, and did a dissertation on U.S. military posture and budget for the post-Cold War world. I started the book in 1987 after Reagan and Gorbachev had become fast friends and and then was well positioned when the Berlin Wall came down a couple of years later. And so since that time, I've spent five years on Capitol Hill working at the Congressional Budget Office, which for those uh, in England or elsewhere who don't know that much about it, it's a formal Uh, part of Congress. We work for Congress there and for both parties and both houses of Congress. But it was set up in the aftermath of Vietnam and Watergate to give Congress, along with the Congressional Research Service Government Accountability Office, give Congress a bit more heft in its analytical capacities in-house to be able to challenge the executive branch, to be able to investigate topics that it found important, whether the president and his or her administration agreed or not. And anyway, it was a wonderful time to be at CBO because, as you can guess, CBO worries a lot about the deficit and the debt. And back 30 some years ago, the public and then Washington did too, unlike today. And uh, so we were doing studies on how to reduce the defense budget in the aftermath of the Cold War and trying to estimate how much Operation Desert Storm against Saddam Hussein's Iraq might cost, things like that. Since 1994, I've been at Brookings continuously, done various kinds of formal and informal advisory roles with government or political campaigns, but generally worked on research topics of U.S. national security and defense policy, some of them with a technology angle, some with a regional angle, some with a budgetary focus. And to answer finally your specific question, I had thought for a long time that I you know, had some views about overall U.S. foreign policy, but never really 
thought that I should have the audacity to try to pull them all together into one single argument. But as I had worked on different pieces of this over the years, you know, writing a idea for how to try to negotiate with North Korea, a proposal for along with former Deputy Secretary of State Jim Steinberg for how to uh, chart the U.S.-China relationship in a somewhat more moderating direction, uh, a book on Europe in 2017 where I argued that Ukraine and Georgia should not be in NATO if we could find a different security arrangement that would protect their well-being without NATO membership just because I was worried about the inflammatory potential vis-a-vis Russia. Having done a number of individual big chunks of a global strategy, I thought that with COVID shutdown, it was time to actually try to pull it all together and integrate it into a single frame, single argument. And the best way I can summarize that in just a couple of sentences is with the title. So the title is The Art of War in an Age of Peace. I'm trying to create, of course, intellectual tension, if not downright uh, cognitive dissonance in suggesting that it's a, it was a peaceful age, at least in the sense the great powers were not fighting each other. This is, again, published last year, uh, but it was a, a fragile peace at best because we needed to stay good at the art of war in order to keep this peace, the United States, NATO more generally, other U.S. allies, etc. So I was trying to create tension. And then with the subtitle, uh, U.S. Grand Strategy and Resolute Restraint, I was trying to wade into this academic and also policy debate that other people would have where I saw sort of both sides in the debate making what I considered important flaws. There were a lot of American, you know, globalists or uh, maximalists, or there are different terms, you know, liberal hegemonists, you call them what you will, who thought the United States should, along with its allies, maximize its promotion of democracy, its expansion of alliances, and, you know, other aspects of its forward-leaning foreign policy at a moment when it still enjoyed quasi-hegemonic standing. I thought that argument was mostly right, but potentially dangerous on issues like uh, pushing NATO too far eastward towards Ukraine and Georgia, or uh, on getting too assertive on each and every rock and shoal where we thought China was being a little bit too forward-leaning itself. So I wanted to sort of argue for a certain amount of restraint in especially taking on new obligations, especially in you know, picking fights with other superpowers. But the, the resolute part was equally important because I definitely am not an offshore balancer or, uh, you know, an isolationist or what some people in the U.S. academic world at least like to call uh, the restrainer group or, or school of thought. I think that last term is a misnomer, I think, because many of the members of the so-called restraint school actually want to pull back from the world. They want to weaken or eliminate American alliances in particular. And so I don't consider them restrainers so much as retrenchers. And I think the words matter. So I wanted to sort of reclaim the word restraint to mean we don't go looking for a lot of new additional things to do, but we should be resolute in defense of existing alliances, global sea lanes and airwaves, the global commons, if you will, as Barry Posen at MIT called them, and be, you know, basically beyond reproach and beyond doubt in our willingness and our ability to defend the territories of formal allies, as well as the international means by which commerce and diplomacy take place, and also try as best we can to minimize the spread of weapons of mass destruction. So to me, that's the agenda that requires resoluteness, but the part of the agenda that requires restraint is the one that would have us expand alliances further, 
you know, maybe someday develop an alliance with Vietnam or India um, that would somehow have us, you know, declare Taiwan to be an independent country, for example, something that some Americans are now saying, in my opinion, very dangerously. Uh, and so on those kinds of issues, I want restraint. So sorry for the long first answer. I promise none of the rest <laughs> of my answers will rival that one. Well, no, that's, that's helpful. I mean, especially with a title that is um, has some kind of obvious tensions in it. It's always really interesting to unpack that. And I kind of want to poke at that a little bit more for a second. Um, and think about kind of what you said at the beginning of like, what if people don't necessarily think of US grand strategy as an obvious thing, and especially in times of peace, first principles, why does the US need to have a grand strategy? Why is it useful to have a grand strategy um, outside the context of maybe a formal Cold War? Well, it's a great question because as I've heard a number of my friends say who have served in senior jobs in government, and, and I have not, my only two government jobs officially full-time were Peace Corps and Congressional Budget Office. Uh, and so I have not been in the executive branch, but people will say no one ever like consults the national security strategy or the national defense strategy or the U.S. grand strategy, which doesn't even exist formally, uh, in order to make a decision about a specific crisis, that it's more of framing an overall conversation. And I think it's useful because if you step back and you try to prescribe a grand strategy, you also have to take stock of what our current or default grand strategy may be. And for Americans in particular, this may be no surprise to British ears, assuming many of your listeners are across the pond in the UK. Uh, but I think we Americans sometimes fail to appreciate or understand just how much we are seen as being very assertive on the world stage. We like to think of ourselves as the country that fled from Britain to get away from all those nasty European quarrels two and a half centuries ago. And we had to fight for our independence and we just wanted to be left alone in our little North American paradise. But of course, that's a myth, uh, as my colleague Bob Kagan has underscored in his books, including uh, Dangerous Nation. We obviously expanded territorially in North America dramatically. We attacked Mexico twice. We uh, then, you know, often, even though we didn't get involved in the world wars until late, we got quite involved in a number of other conflicts since 1945 pretty early. And I think, you know, we have a much more assertive grand strategy than Americans appreciate. And it's worth having this debate so that maybe by thinking that through, we we appreciate a little more how other peoples around the world may see us. Because if you try to, you know, create a taxonomy and a, a, a system of understanding all the different things we're doing around the world, you take serious stock of that to try to then, again, develop your own alternative grand strategy. You realize just how much we've done and how much we tend to do almost instinctually at this point. Uh, and I think that can be unhealthy, especially if we don't even understand it, if we don't even think about it. So that's one reason. And then certainly as you allocate budgetary and human resources to various problems, it's important to have some sense of prioritization. It doesn't mean that when you get to a given crisis with any one of those problems that your grand strategy will tell you what to do. But it might tell you that you should be spending you know, perhaps a bit more money on climate dangers and a bit less money on nuclear weapons, for example. I mean, it's, it's never going to be clear cut. These are not 
clearly scientific methodologies we use to develop grand strategies, but it, you do attempt to integrate all the different pieces of the foreign policy agenda in one place, which then if you've really uh, followed through on your own logic should guide at least some of your thinking about where to spend money, where to bolster the human capital and capacity in different agencies, one versus another, uh, which parts of the world your secretary of state and defense should try to travel to more than others if, the, if they have a choice in their travel schedules. And same for the president, of course, that kind of thing. So it, it's helpful to get some perspective on yourself and your own country. It's helpful to have structured debates about which priorities should most uh, you know, demand our attention and resources going forward. That makes sense. Um, and that definitely is a good argument for why you not only need a grand strategy, but you need one that can be summed up in this case in two words, resolute restraint, um, which is very easy to remember and therefore actually start to use. Just kind of what I want to turn to next is sort of seeing what this looks like in practice or what this could obviously look like in practice. Um, and so the first thing I want to pick up on is deterrence. And the idea that deterrence is something that is doable as a core part of U.S. grand strategy. Can you help us understand why, where, and what sort of contexts deterrence can factor in? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think the, the simplest way to think about deterrence and, and how we should be trying to achieve it and where and when it can be achieved is to think about where it's succeeded and where it's failed since 1945. Before 1945, the United States didn't really try to deter wars. We didn't have any alliances with major Eurasian allies. And of course, World War I and World War II happened and started sort of without us. We didn't get involved in either one for a little bit. World War II, we didn't get involved in until we had been directly attacked fairly early in the war. But of course, uh, as British and other European friends know, the war was already three years underway by then, and uh, or even four, depending on how you want to count, and World War I, same kind of thing. But since, since 1945, we've had alliances with you know, uh, NATO starting in 1949, Japan starting about that same time or shortly after, and then increasingly some other countries too. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, and I think we've had a successful track record of working with our allies, our formal treaty allies, to make sure they have not been attacked since that strategy began to be our fundamental way of doing business around the world. And if you think about it, we've been extraordinarily successful. We, I mean, the United States plus the allies that have partnered with us, especially where the alliances have been backed up with standing military forces that exercise together, where the United States has skin in the game all the time and military presence all the time, Northeast Asia, Europe in particular and where our alliances are formal as opposed to uh, a little mushy or a little vague or a little ambiguous. And we'll come back to Ukraine and Taiwan and the Middle East in a second. But I think we've been very good at deterring war in places where our commitment to fight as if you know, a, an ally were United States territory, uh, was, where, where that commitment was clear and really uncontestable. Where we've done much less well, of course, is in places where we did not have any such commitment. And we were hoping that the place or region would be spared conflict and attack. And if you think about America's four big wars since 1945, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, 
None of those were formal allies. And none of them, therefore, in any way, shape or form, sort of guaranteed a U.S. military response or should have been seen as leading to one by the countries that might attack our ally or what I shouldn't say ally, our, our partner. And in fact, in the first of those cases in Korea in 1950, we hadn't yet formed the USROK alliance. We had explicitly been saying Korea is not within our sphere of influence or our security perimeter. It's not an ally. It's not something we'd fight over. We're going to focus instead on defending Japan and Europe. And we're going to make this seemingly very sound, grand strategic decision that Korea is not worth the marbles. Well, that's a good example of where grand strategy can get you into trouble because it sounded very good on paper. It probably would have gotten an A in the you know, academic halls of Cambridge or Harvard. But unfortunately, it also was well received in Pyongyang, Moscow and Beijing. And when, uh, when Kim Il-sung heard that comment by Secretary of State Acheson, in the United States, he decided that he could attack South Korea with impunity, and he persuaded Stalin and Mao that it wasn't such a crazy idea after all. So the invasion was greenlit. So <laughs> deterrence doesn't work when you don't try to apply it to a given place because you've told the whole world you don't care enough to fight for something. And you know we can go through similar analyses about Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But maybe I should end this answer since I promised not to drone on quite as long but then, uh, by, by saying that the interesting questions now, and I'll just make this point and then we can get into them later, uh, Ukraine, Taiwan, two key places where the United States also fails to have binding alliance commitments. And one of them has now been attacked by an aggressor. And the question is, how will that war wind down? And then will the other uh, entity, Taiwan, also become the victim as leaders in Beijing perhaps deduce that the United States maybe would not fight on behalf of Taiwan. At least that's one possible interpretation of, of our recent actions. We can come back to that in a minute. Well, so I would like to ask about um, Ukraine and especially within the context of what your grand strategy recommendations are for U.S. grand strategy for NATO and Russia generally. Obviously, when you wrote this, um, there were certainly tensions in those areas, but not quite the same tensions that we see now. So how should Resolute Restraint um, think about that sort of tangle of relationships? Well, I think that, first of all, President Biden was correct to decide that while we should do a lot to help Ukraine, we shouldn't send American combat forces to fight Russia over Ukraine, because that would have clearly risked World War III and nuclear war. And uh, Ukraine is an important country, but it's not a treaty ally. Uh, it does produce, as we now have all learned, 10% of the world's grains averaged across a number of different kinds of foodstuffs. But uh, that's not perhaps enough to think that the United States should fight for, and other NATO countries should fight for Ukraine as if it were their own territory, which of course is the logic of the NATO Article 5 commitment and not, not one to be taken lightly or applied too widely. I think we've potentially already pushed our luck with the size of NATO. And so I think Biden was right not to not to want to fight Russia directly and to make that clear. But I also think that he and his predecessors made a mistake in promising, specifically back in 2008 at the Bucharest summit of the NATO alliance, that we would someday bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, but with no timetable and no interim security guarantee. And I guarantee you Vladimir Putin heard that message loud and clear. And we reiterated it last fall 
when the United States and Ukraine signed a charter on a strategic relationship that reaffirmed our commitment to someday bring Ukraine into the NATO alliance. And, you know, when American proponents of NATO enlargement are challenged, you know, that this kind of behavior could worsen the political environment, um, they sometimes respond, well, yeah, but we didn't have any near-term plan to bring Ukraine in, so what's the fuss? Well, you know, Putin is interested in the long game here, and he's not interested in waiting until the month before Ukraine might be brought into NATO to prevent that eventuality. He was inclined to do it as time went by over the years, and he saw this possibility. He wanted to preclude it. I'm not defending Putin. I am not saying the war is our fault. And I think there's only one criminal here in terms of criminal decision-making, that's Vladimir Putin. Only one country is at fault fundamentally here, that's Russia. But I do believe we collectively in NATO made a strategic decision in 2008 that increased the chances of war because it increased the chances that Russians like Vladimir Putin would see our promise to bring Ukraine into NATO someday as an unacceptable possibility and take various steps to reduce those risks. It doesn't make us morally at fault. I think it makes the Russians morally at fault. They attacked an innocent sovereign country. But we had to, and we should have, in my judgment, been looking ahead as to how that kind of a 2008 declaration would affect the psychology of Russian leaders, the politics of the Russian Federation, and therefore the chances of war. And so I think we wound up with sort of the worst of all worlds, you know, Ukraine, uh, and Georgia promised membership with no interim security guarantee or timetable for membership, sort of a half pregnant stance or, or status that I think uh, was exactly the wrong place on the deterrent spectrum. Hmm. And to bring this then to the other, um, I guess, similar conflict, I know you mentioned Taiwan, but the other one that comes to mind in terms of historical relationships and kind of what will happen next and what statements might be made that might be interpreted different ways is North Korea. So how does resolute restraint and future of US grand strategy think about North Korea, given particularly what you've just been saying about kind of statements of intent and follow through? Good. You finally gave me an easy question because to me, this, <laughs> to, to me, this really is an easy question. We have a formal treaty with South Korea. We have a menacing North Korea with dozens of nuclear weapons just above the DMZ. South Korea may not be the biggest, most important country on earth, but it, it is the 11th largest economy. It's an amazing democracy, an amazing success story. And there is no alternative for us but to defend it as if it were American soil. The, the, having a debate about somehow breaking our alliance with, north, with, with South Korea, excuse me, would be a huge mistake. It would not only jeopardize the well-being of an important country, it would throw into doubt our commitments to other countries with which we now have treaty alliances because they would rightly wonder if the United States could make this decision vis-a-vis South Korea, who's next? And when will it be our turn to lose this American nuclear umbrella, this American 800 billion a year military behemoth? You know, Americans themselves may not always be the smartest or make the best decisions, but you know, for a lot of countries out there on the littoral of Eurasia, it's a lot nicer to be allied with us than to be lonely and, and unmoored from any security structure. So I think the idea of doing anything except, you know, defending South Korea in its moment of duress would be a huge mistake and would unravel a lot of the broader logic 
that has achieved this deterrence around the world and especially in Europe and East Asia so effectively now for 77 years. So we should definitely keep our alliance, keep our forces. You can debate how many, but something substantial that would implicate us on day one of any future conflict. We should definitely have major reinforcement capability to get additional materials quickly to Korea. We should think hard about the nuclear threat and ways we could mitigate that, even if I'm not sure there's any way to eliminate it. And we should keep this alliance indefinitely. Those are my views, because this is where resoluteness kicks in. You need to have zero ambiguity about your willingness to fight for your best friends and your core allies. And South Korea meets those standards. Well, otherwise, what's the point of having a treaty in the first place? Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned capability, because one thing that I appreciated of your book in talking about grand strategy is it didn't neglect the domestic side and talked about the importance of kind of having ducks in a row, really, to make any of this possible. And this definitely, I'm sure, comes out of your background um, in congressional research and um, budget analyses, which maybe aren't the sexiest things that grab headlines, but are incredibly important to any of this actually happening. So I'd love to ask about kind of two pieces of the domestic side. First off, um, about Congress's role in military operations overseas. We obviously, we have the authorization for the use of military force, which has now been around for a very, very long time. Um, how do you see sort of Congress's role going forward? Great, thank you. And of course, uh, yes, I do try to spend a fair amount of time on the sometimes unsexy topic of American defense capability and military budgets. And you know, there are a lot of people who make mistakes on this, either thinking it's unimportant or thinking just because we outspend you know, the rest of NATO by more than two to one, China by three to one, Russia by 15 to one, that somehow if we really put our minds to it, we would defeat them in war. That's not how it works. And we all saw that in Iraq and Afghanistan. We lost to far less uh, resourced enemies, given the nature of the fighting and the locations of the battle zones. So we have to spend a lot of time thinking about our military capability and whether our threats are credible, our deterrent posture, therefore, is robust, and whether our capabilities are adequate to win various conflicts. And by the way, if they're not adequate, we, we should know that too. So, um, you know, with China and Taiwan, for example, I think if China tried to blockade Taiwan, it's not clear who would win uh, a ongoing or, a, you know, a, a follow on fight where the United States and allies might try to break the blockade. I just wrote a long paper at the Brookings website trying to model this out. I don't think you, you can really be sure of, of who would succeed in ultimately, you know, resolving that conflict on their own terms, even if the conflict stayed within the zone of horizontal and vertical escalation in which it began. And of course, it could escalate. The losing side may decide not to accept defeat. So military budgets and capabilities really are important to keep studying. I think more people in foreign policy fields need to probably learn more about defense in a technical sense. So having made that little sermonette, let me ask you to remind me, please, of where you finished your your two-part question, because I know I just addressed the first part, not the second. Uh, a little bit. What For that first part of um, the technical side, obviously, the Defense Department is a key part of this, but so is the legal and political part, which is Congress. So should we be keeping the AUMF forever? What's Congress's role in this grand strategy? So if I could take just a second by way of background, because I'm sure, given the sophistication of your audience, most people do know what you and I are talking about. But let me, since this is you know American acronyms, let me not be guilty of the Washington disease of just throwing them around. As uh, 
as friends overseas will perhaps remember from our constitution, Congress has the exclusive power in the United States system to declare war, but that has not been employed since World War II. All of the wars that we fought since World War II have failed to uh, benefit from a congressional declaration of war, which requires two thirds majority vote in both houses. And so uh, what we've done is essentially, you know, going back to Harry Truman in the Korean War, we've we've basically argued that uh, in Truman's case, we were conducting a police operation. And because the United Nations had blessed it since China and the Soviet Union sat out the vote, that therefore that was adequate uh, authorization and Congress's role was not required. And because everybody in America on June 26th, 1950, the day after the invasion, was seeing read, you know, literally and figuratively, that there wasn't any doubt about Congress's willingness to authorize an operation or to declare war. So Truman just didn't bother. And then that was the same kind of thing that happened. Sometimes there were congressional resolutions to authorize operations. Ironically, George W. Bush gets a bad name, but he, he actually got congressional authorizations for what he did against the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and then against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And, and so that's what Miranda is referring to, the authorization on the use of military force, which was the, the one that's most commonly referred to and most general in its applicability was passed in September of 2001, shortly after the 9-11 attacks, and then you know allowed the uh, October and successive succeeding months of operations against the Taliban that led to their overthrow and essentially created the underpinning as well for all the follow-on missions in, uh, in Afghanistan since then. So that AUMF is still alive and well. It has no time horizon, no, no window uh, by which it closes, and also no particular geographic constraint. And a president could use it against anybody who he or she could portray as related to the attackers involved in the 9-11 strikes. And so Barack Obama did not try to use that AUMF to legitimate going after Muammar Gaddafi in Libya with the rest of NATO as, you know, essentially co-belligerents. We instead we argued that was sort of like a police action, sort of like Truman, not likely to become a big enough thing to require congressional permission, uh, even though it ultimately produced the death and overthrow of the uh, the leader of the country. So I think Obama was stretching his prerogatives there, uh, but also other presidents have stretched the AUMF from 2001 to justify operations from Somalia to um, Mali uh, to, you know, uh, other places where Al Qaeda or ISIS have popped up, uh, whether, you know, the Levant or the Middle East. And that law still stays on the books, even though it's a big, broad, vague law that probably needs to be tightened up. So I think Congress should reassert its authorities by essentially sunsetting the 2001 AUMF and writing a new one. But the new one uh, should, it has to be careful not to be overly restrictive because, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or other such threats may indeed arise again, and they're still there now, as we just saw this summer with the killing of al-Zawahri in uh, in Kabul, the former number two al-Qaeda, former number one al-Qaeda leader. And, and so Congress needs to have some kind of mechanism that it doesn't 
automatically sunset any new permission, any new law, um, unless you know there is something else to take its place or an explicit debate that would uh, would revoke it. Um, so anyway, I don't know how much you want to get into of detail on what I think a, a new AUMF should uh, should try to do, but it, it it should try to be a little more restrictive than the 2001 version. But it shouldn't be too restrictive because on this particular set of threats, we have already had a big debate and we have a national consensus to keep going after them. I think where Congress's role would need to start from scratch and be absolutely central would be if we ever decided to go to war against China, Russia, North Korea. When you get into those kinds of potentially new conflicts, heaven forbid that a president be allowed to accept all those risks for the country and the world on his own. And so there, I think Congress at least needs to pass an authorization, whether it's a formal declaration of war with two thirds majority vote or an authorization with simple majorities and, and less constitutional heft, but still some important legal and political heft. You can debate that. But I think Congress does need to get involved when there's a, a new conflict against a new adversary that's being considered. It's helpful to um, think about kind of some of those details, the level of detail needed, sort of where is it useful to have Congress involved in and not, and to think about kind of, as you've just framed it, as existing debates versus new debates, Um, you know, whether or not you understand uh, the ins and outs of every aspect of congressional policy, I think that's a helpful framework to um, share with us. So thank you for that. Um, I'd like to continue thinking about details, though, and go really into what I know is one of your sweet spots, um, which is the fiscal policy aspect, the funding of all of this. Um, How do you think that should work for revamping U.S. grant strategy in this way? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. And I did try to address it in the book. And I didn't just talk about the defense budget because, as you know, I'm concerned, like many Americans, about the health of our own democracy and society and the well-being of the middle class, the degree to which the crucial middle class feels that its interests are or are not being served by this globalist approach to foreign policy the United States has followed since World War II. And so if we don't, if we don't persuade the majority of Americans that this kind of activist role for America is good for the world and good for them, I think we could see more populist leaders like Donald Trump who doubt our alliances and perhaps call some of them into question in the future. So my big concern on the fiscal front is not so much the defense budget, where the politics of national security seem to be, at least for the moment, uh, providing ample funding for the military. My concerns are actually more on the domestic side in terms of investments in Uh, our workforce, investments in our people, the fairness of our tax code, and the general sense that middle-class workers need more of a leg up in this economy than they're getting now. And so what I tried to do in one chapter of my book was to do a very simple and short summary of research by colleagues in other parts of Brookings and other think tanks and academics who who, uh, have sketched out some of the more compelling ideas on what we need to do by way of improving education, vocational training, uh, you know, vocational assistance for uh, trade displacement or uh, displacement of workers through automation, uh, you know, some changes to the social safety net and tightening of some of the programs we have for people when they're unemployed. Now, the COVID debate has happened and changed some of these 
you know, parameters to an extent for the moment. But when I cost out the different elements of a sort of middle class first domestic economic agenda, it looks to me as if it's going to require spending 10 to 20 percent more money on at the federal level on, on people and these kinds of programs than we are right now. And so that means, you know, in very rough terms, another trillion dollars a year, let's say. And we really can't afford that unless we change the tax system and, you know, gather more revenue, not just from the super rich, but even to be blunt from people like me, you know, people who are making, let's say in the, um, a hundred thousand a year plus category. We're even going to need, and certainly those making more than 200,000 to 300,000 plus, we're going to need to ask more from that group. If we're really going to take seriously the problems that are afflicting our middle class and therefore affecting our foreign policy, because they are pulling out the foundations that have convinced this American middle class for so long that a, a, a role of leadership in the international environment makes sense for America and makes sense for them and their families and their pocketbook. They no longer believe that as much as they did before. And so therefore, U.S. leadership is at risk. If I thought there were uh, a successor waiting in the wings uh, to replace the United States, I'd be happy to uh, defer to somebody else. But with Britain no longer in the EU, for example, there's even less of a chance the EU is going to play that role. I certainly don't see China or Russia playing it in a constructive way or Japan or the United Nations. And, you know, leadership implies a certain amount of decision making, even when some of the decisions wind up being wrong. You can't just go for least common denominator approaches. You can't let everybody have a veto over uh, reactions to serious problems. And so there needs to be some kind of a central international decision making hub or nexus and again, if it could be Brussels through NATO, I'd be thrilled. But um, I think that's going to take a while to make these kinds of decisions, you know, through a collective process, even among 30 or 32 democracies. And I certainly don't see any alternative, you know, to the United States from an organization of which the United States is not a part. Like I say, I don't see India, China, Japan, Russia, or the EU uh, playing this kind of a, of a role that would, you know, deter North Korea um, deter China war over Taiwan, you know, et cetera. Not that we have a perfect track record, but at least we try. And at least we do pretty well at deterring violence against our major allies. And so, uh, I really think we've got to shore up the domestic underpinnings of that consensus, that American consensus that has led to that foreign policy. Hence my interest in the middle class, hence my conclusion that we actually need to spend substantially more to, uh, educate and train and take care of that middle class. Hence my belief that the United States needs to pay higher taxes, especially the middle upper class and above. Hmm. See, this is what I mean about not neglecting the domestic in order to make the grand strategy make sense. So I'm really uh, glad that that was such a part of the book and thank you for explaining how all those pieces go together um, and how this idea of domestic and foreign being separate probably doesn't actually make sense in practice. Um, I have two sort of final questions, one kind of big, broad picture one, um, looking back, linking to the future, and then one that just looks at the future, hopefully an easy question to finish on. But first, why does World War I worry you as a historical precedent to think about today? Well, it worries me, since I wrote the book, it worries me for an additional reason, which is, <laughs> I, I think the Russia-Ukraine war may start to resemble World War I. 
And the reason I say that, here we are in uh, the end of the summer of 2022, and who knows where this is going next, but it certainly looks like there's going to be a robust fall fighting season in Europe as the Ukrainians continue to receive weaponry and hope they can take back a bit of territory, roughly 20% of their country now being in Russian hands, but also as Vladimir Putin looks to expand his armed forces and uh, be able to fend off those Ukrainian counteroffensives, but also perhaps look to next year. And you know, my new book project, which we'll touch on at the very end, I know, and, and thank you for your willingness to let me advertise it a little, but, but I spent a lot of time on World War I and, you know, I should be careful trying to teach Brits about World War One. It's like teaching your grandma <laughs> how to suck eggs, uh, to use uh, the old expression. But, but I think that one way to summarize much of World War One, after the initial attempts by the Germans to, on the Western Front to, to take France and ultimately stymied by combined French and uh, British resistance with a little bit of help from a few others. And, and then uh, finally, you know, sort of a development of a trench line by the end of that year, sort of from Ypres and, you know, the Belgian border roughly or part of Belgium all the way over to uh, the, the border with, um, you know, of course, some of northern France at that point was in German hands, but then uh, all the way over to the Alps and ultimately about a almost 500 mile long trench system, which didn't move much for the next three years. But every winter. And again, forgive me for oversimplifying uh, if some readers or listeners don't don't prefer this level of generality. But every winter, everybody would go back to the drawing board, the Brits, the French, the Germans, and they'd think about how they could get ready for a big new fight and a big new push the next year, the next spring. And they'd stock up on a lot of ammunition. They'd get their war industry going. They'd secretly fortify certain parts of their uh, you know, positions so that they could attempt a giant offensive the next year they would dig their own trench system more deeply so they could hold the line with fewer people where they did not want to concentrate their own offensive push and just wanted to play defense and this sort of repeated itself for about three winters in a row and every time there was some big new effort the next year you know the sum or what have you or Verdun and every year the uh Casualties were enormous and the, the front line barely moved. Things started to shift more. Uh, well, they did shift always on the Eastern Front. And then, of course, really started to shift with the Bolshevik Revolution. And then, of course, the American entry into the war in 17. But it, it really uh, worries me that the Ukrainians and Russians may do the same kind of thing for, you know, I don't know how many years. Uh, uh, let's hope and pray it's it's that I'm just completely wrong or that it's not more than just one. But I think they're each going to have a theory of victory for Ukraine. It's all the help they're getting from the rest of the world. And the fact they're fighting for their own territory for Russia, it's that they are four to five times the size of Ukraine and are still doing quite nicely economically, at least in terms of, of revenue from hydrocarbons, even if their high tech imports are suffering. And so both can construct a theory of how they'll prevail if they just stay with it. And that's probably going to mean we don't see a negotiated end of this war in 2022. Uh, and maybe not for quite a while. So that's one parallel of or one uh, one element of the World War One history that haunts me. But the one I was talking about in the book, which again was, as you know, published last year before the Russian attack on Ukraine, was that I thought we were entering into a period where everybody was getting a little too paranoid about the other 
everybody was getting a little too concerned that a squabble over one small piece of territory or, or one incident could, uh, you know, snowball because nobody would be prepared to put the interests of, of crisis de-escalation ahead of the interest of, uh, of, you know, sort of punishing the adversary for what they had done and demonstrating resolve, demonstrating strength. And so some of the same dynamics that ultimately produced World War I, sparked by the assassination of one, uh, admittedly important, but you know, not central political player in Sarajevo in June of 1914, then led to a war that killed more than 10 million and set up the conditions that gave rise to Hitler and World War II as well. So one of the most tragic things in human history, if not the single most tragic, uh, was somewhat similar in the dynamics. And I do think that the Western democracies today are much more conscientious, transparent and inclusive and well-run, well-governed countries than any of the major belligerents to World War I. So in that sense, we have some advantages. We also have nuclear deterrence. We also have the memories of the world wars that should hopefully, you know, chasten us a bit and, and, uh, and sober us about the risks of hegemonic conflict. But I still think that human pride being what it is, that there is a, a lot to be learned from the outbreak and then the continued course of World War I. And we shouldn't just overlearn the lessons of World War II. Americans tend to do that. I don't know if that's as true in Europe, but, but I think we got to remember rivalries that run out of control can produce wars just as much as the failure of deterrence or the uh, arrival on the scene of a truly evil uh, megalomaniac like Hitler. You can have wars that begin and wars usually do begin because people are proud, uh, narcissistic a bit, uh, you know, angry, passionate, uh, maybe a little bit greedy, all the things that Thucydides wrote about. You, you don't necessarily need a Hitler to start a world war. And uh, we should remember that. Hmm. Well, we definitely should remember that. And I think that it's um, quite useful to think about those parallels. I did uh, always find in the US that World War II was remembered more than World War I. Um, in the UK, that's obviously much less true. But remembered versus taking lessons from is not always the same thing. Um, but you are helping with that effort in your next project, as well as this book, so I was wondering if, as my last question, I could ask you to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now or next. Thanks. Well, I just finished the manuscript and it's going to be published and come out this fall with a publication date of 2023 and from Brookings. And it's called Military History for the Modern Strategist, which is a big subject. So with the, sub <laughs> with the subtitle, I narrow it down just a little to say America's major wars since 1861. So I don't leave out, I try not to leave out or in any way uh, underplay the crucial roles of all the European and Asian powers, for example, in the world wars, where the United States role, as big as it was, was secondary to some. Um, and so, you know, it's not just meant to be uh, history from American vantage point, but it is meant to focus on just the American Civil War World War I, World War II, Korea and Vietnam together, and then Iraq and Afghanistan together. And I mostly wanted to write the book because after spending 30 plus years in policy schools in the United States as a student, and since then as a part-time professor, I've always felt we do a bad job with military history. 
And again, I think European friends tend to be a little better, especially maybe British friends on knowing their history. Sometimes in the American public policy education system, we treat history as providing data points to populate a data set before we run a regression, looking for a social science theory of human (laughs) behavior. And that's fine, but it really should not be the only purpose to which we put history. And I was also struck over the years when I got to know policymakers or American military leaders, they seem to know their history pretty well and could almost invoke it to help guide their thinking, or at least maybe just spark their imagination that most of them were smart enough to know you're not going to get an exact repeat of history in any given case or situation. But I know, for example, General Petraeus would often think about General Grant from the Civil War during the difficult days of the Iraq surge and try to take some uh, inspiration and solace from some of the things that Grant had observed at various points, like the Battle of Shiloh in 1862, which went badly, especially the first day for the Union. And so I felt like understanding the basic chronology, at least at a strategic level and a operational or campaign level of those major wars was important. And then with some interpretation to set context and draw lessons. So that's what I try to write. And uh, I hope people like it. It was it was an awesome experience for me to attempt that because that's really been my main project during COVID. I just assembled this small library of secondhand books and articles from amazon.com and other sources. And, and just every time I started a new war, I would just spend the whole first month or more of that season or that period, just reading, just read and try to get in the mindset, try to appreciate the mentality. I know British friends, English friends like to talk about how somebody goes to graduate school and they read history or they, it's always seemed to me a little bit of a funny choice of words. Uh, presumably in graduate school, you do more than just read. However, in, however, in this particular case, I have to say, I appreciated that terminology because half of what I was doing was just trying to read critically and digest it all and try to make sense of it and then summarize it in my own words on paper afterwards. So thanks for the chance to promote military history for the modern strategist, and it'll be out soon. Amazing. Well, while we have that to look forward to, um, listeners can whet their appetite, I suppose, by reading the other book we've been discussing as a reminder titled The Art of War in an Age of Peace, U.S. Grand Strategy and Resolute Restraint from Yale University Press last year in 2021. Dr. Michael O'Hanlon, I'm so thrilled that you've come and joined us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Miranda, thanks hugely to you and keep up the great work over there and best wishes to all my friends uh, across the pond and elsewhere as we enter into September.